This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his heirs? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Last week... Scott Miller took us through James 1, and then with the example of Psalm 23, talked about some of the practical ways in which, on a daily basis, we can read God's Word and have it implanted within us. And the week before that, Ben Kant helped us look at Psalm 1, where we saw that this is a blessed thing, this is a fruitful thing, to be people of the Word that we're going to be people of many words. We're going to uh, go through the rhythms of having a message poured over upon us. And if we're not intentional about being uh, those who have God's word poured into us, we'll be formed and malformed by the ways of the world, by the witness of our culture, by the sinful inclinations of our own selfish hearts. And so we've seen how it's good and desirable to be people of the word, and we've seen something of the practicality of how you could actually do this on a day-to-day basis. And especially for those of you who've not uh, yet tried out the practice of community Bible reading, uh, whether it's using the the journals that are available here on the Connect table uh, that many of us use or or using the app on your your device, uh, that would be one way that's been mentioned in past weeks as sort of a practical next step. Well, as we try and land the plane this week, and as we look at Psalm 19, I want to give you a little hope. Uh, You could write this whole series off as the church's effort at a New Year's resolution. Uh, The gym wants you to go do some new exercise program. Uh, Perhaps your spouse wants you to take on some diet. Uh, Perhaps your boss wants you to aim at some sort of uh, goals and professional development. Perhaps this is the year you want to graduate uh, from high school or college or some graduate program. And we oftentimes set those goals in January, and soon enough we find 
that we tried hard, maybe. We, we thought through it a bit, but we, we tired out. And with our decreased energy and commitment, those goals were left unmet. And so my goal this morning is simply to give you hope, uh, some good cheer as we begin this new year, as we think about being formed by God's word, by looking at how David, the psalmist, speaks of God working through God's word. And in all that we see in this psalm, I hope above anything else, what you'll take from it is this, this idea that when we sit and we study, we meditate, we pray over, we recite together, we memorize, we, we sing God's word. When we do those things, when we use God's word, you are not alone, nor are you the most interesting person in the equation, but that God promises to be there. And God promises to act there. And God promises to transform you in the midst of those rhythms and practices. And I think that's what we can pick up from Psalm 19. And so as we look at it, let's look for three things as we look at this psalm. It, It breaks down into three sections. And we'll look at each of them in turn, focusing especially on the second two. The first section, verses 1 to 6, speaks of the good witness of the world. It says remarkable things about what we would call creation, the world around us, the world we inhabit, uh, what we, in more scientific terms today, would would describe as the ecological environment within which we move. That sounds terribly unpoetic, and it doesn't sound terribly beautiful, but you look around you, and you don't just see things that move following scientific laws, but you see things that evoke wonder that draw you out of yourself? Who of us, when we're out on the ocean looking at endless blue water, isn't somehow drawn out of ourselves by the, sky, the scope and size of the world around us? Who of us looking up at a Floridian sunset as all those pastels paint the sky isn't staggered by the brilliance and beauty of God's handiwork. We could look at other things. We could look at the complexity of human beings, of our bodies, of the remarkable reality of how we're knit together in such ways that life just works. We experience disease and illness and so forth, but even that, we have a design that is meant to, to cure, that's meant to remit those things that go wrong. And we could look at our own being, our own shape, our own human form as something that evokes wonder and awe. We could look at the animals around us, the fact that there are so many, that they fill the earth in so many ways, and that they bring not only order and wholeness, what the the profound philosophical text the Lion King would call the circle of life, but that they bring delight. That God not only provided insects and animals and birds that will uh, create an environment that's stable and and coherent, but gave us things like geckos. That's glorious. We Floridians can see just the, the humor and brilliance of God's provision of animals around us. But this text focuses on the world itself, not human occupants, not animal neighbors, but the creation. And notice what it says in these first six verses. We tend to say the world is, the world exists, the world is there. 
And maybe if we use a different kind of verb to speak of what's going on in the world, it will be a passive verb, that something is being done to the world, that we are uh, polluting the world, that something is going awry to the world, that it's being mistreated. But notice the verbs used here in these first few verses. The world is doing something. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Each of those verbs speaks of how the world evokes wonder, how the world draws us upward to consider God, how the world speaks of God. It reveals God in some way. And so What David begins here addressing in Psalm 19 is the good witness of the world, that we as people of the book have what John Calvin would call scripture-shaped lenses, that we can look at the whole world with an awe and a wonder, receiving it as a gift from God. But the psalm quickly goes on and fixes its attention elsewhere. It's a good gift that we're not to look down upon, we're not to forget, we're not to squander, we're certainly not to mistreat the glorious gift of this world. We're not to somehow take God's call to us to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth and have dominion and to treat it as if we can do anything we want with it, but we're to be good stewards and keepers of the world. We're to be responsible and selfless in our use of it. And yet at the same time, the world isn't the great thing described in this psalm. In verses 7 through 11, David goes on. And having addressed that good witness of the world, he's now going to talk about the great word of God. Notice what he says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Again, follow the verbs. If the verbs in the first section all speak of things being proclaimed, of things being said, of things being spoken and poured forth, notice that these verbs go one step further. Those of you who are parents know that you can say something and that is not the same thing as it being productively received. Those of you who have friends and siblings and roommates and spouses, you know in conversation that you're attempting to address a serious issue and you you want to say what's on your heart. And you bring it forth and you pour it forth and you reveal it. And that doesn't necessarily guarantee that it is helpfully received, that it is heard and taken in. You see, it's one thing for something to be proclaimed. It's another thing for it to be productive. And verses 7 to 11 say that while the world is a good witness to God, the law of the Lord is a greater word from God. There's a couple things we got to catch about that. First of all, we need to understand what's being said here when it's talking about this law of the Lord. This fall, if you were 
Here in worship, we walked through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and you'll remember that in numerous places in that letter, the apostle Paul spoke of how Christians are no longer under law, whether it's in chapters two and three, or especially, say, in, in Galatians five eighteen, that if you're in the Spirit, you're no longer under the law. And so we might be tempted to write this off as some sort of legalistic word, maybe, maybe for the people of Israel long ago, long before Jesus came around. Uh, maybe this addresses the commands that they thought they should follow, but, but this isn't for us today. This isn't a word for you and me who follow Jesus. But it, it's worth noting that that's not what's being addressed here. When we read that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, We're not reading simply that the commands or the rules or the do this and don't do that's of the Bible are perfect. The the law or the Torah is a term that can mean that at times, like in Galatians 5, but that often simply means instruction, teaching. All the many things that God wants to describe, all the many things that God wants to communicate, all the many things that God wants to implant in your heart and mind, that's the law of the Lord. And that's why you get a lot of synonyms. Law is followed by testimony, precepts, commandment, the fear of the Lord, and the rules of the Lord. It includes commands, things you ought to do or ought not to do. But it also takes in testimony, stories of what God has done. It takes in precepts or principles about how the world is and how things go. It's all-inclusive. It's a synonym in, in very real terms for the whole Word of God. We heard this also when Damien led us in our call to worship from Psalm 119, a longer psalm making this same point, that the law of the Lord is good. It's glorious. It brings joy and blessing because it, it describes reality, who God is, who we are before God. And notice the verbs. It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It doesn't simply say something that's worth attending to. It actually brings about the appropriate result. It doesn't just communicate, but it actually conforms us to its ways. It is not simply evocative. It is effective. The Bible tells us, of course, that there are many ways to learn of God. You could perhaps hear God from the mouth of the donkey. Go read the Pentateuch. That occurs. God can speak from the heavens. God can address us from the barnyard animal. But time and again, God tells us that if we want to learn of God, if we want to be instructed by his law, his Torah, his teaching, we turn to his word because that's where he promises to address us. Not just to address us, but to effectively change us. Some of you perhaps know the the book from 2001. Jim Collins, the management expert, uh, wrote one of the best-selling management and business books of the last few decades, uh, From Good to Great. 
And he described in that book a number of reasons why most companies or businesses, most enterprises, don't make the jump from being average to being great. And he described what seem to be common trends in those few that do make that jump. And he mentioned seven different trends, and, and one of them right at the heart of it was that those who move from being good to great know that they need to winnow off those things that they do in an average way and focus on things that are most effective. You avoid what we might call mission creep, where you just sort of attend to everything and and you miss focus on what's the greatest thing. And I think that's, in many ways, something of the logic here, that David is saying the whole world speaks in a good way of God. But we do well to remember, we do well to remember, Christian, that God speaks in a greater way through his word. And if we're those who need that, if we're those who depend on that, we're wise to be intentional. We're wise to focus our schedule. We're wise to refine our efforts. We're wise to seek out accountability and encouragement that we will go and return and linger there again and again and again. There is a good witness to God in the world, but there is a greater promise of God in his word, in his law. That's the encouragement for us as we think about what it might mean to experience God's word in everyday life. That when we experience it, it's not us performing some hocus-pocus act of finding spiritual significance in a really ancient story, of somehow cooking up some idea of how this, this might have spiritual significance. No, we're not alone. We're not on our own as we read our Bible. We have this promise from God that his word does these things, that it's made effective. As the epistle to the Hebrews will put it in chapter 4, verse 12, that God's word is living and active. It's not any other book because God has put a promise upon him, because God has given his presence through it. But I think if we're honest, if you're anything like me, an objection comes up. An objection comes up with all this talk about the law of the Lord. And the objection could come in a number of different forms, but we have this suspicion, this sort of hesitancy, I think, that all this talk about the law of the Lord and the instruction of the Lord and the precepts and rules and commandments of the Lord, that this is not for our good. This is not going to benefit us. This is going to hedge us in. Uh, This is going to be the spiritual equivalent of city zoning codes, that sort of mandate all buildings look the same. And if, if we follow Jesus in a way that's just attended to, to laws and rules and scriptural teachings, it's going to homogenize us. We're all going to be sort of the, the personal equivalents of big box stores, you know, all looking the same. Individuality uh, sort of shirked, uh, autonomy confronted, and, and that's not flourishing. We tend to believe that that to be happy, to be blessed, we need to go our own way. It's not weird for us that an 11-year-old can describe what's their own style and what isn't their own style. I mean, that's just a part of our culture. That's, That's obvious and natural to us. And all this talk about the law of the Lord that's perfect and that needs to change, that sounds like it's just gonna put us in a box. 
and that it'll harm us, not help us. I think there's three different things that we can see here that help us think about that from a different angle. I think the first thing that we've got to catch to this innate objection that we all to some extent feel is simply to acknowledge that clarity is good. Clarity is good. I've been going through the process in recent weeks of training new staff members at work in various tasks. And, and whether you've been on the, the end of training others or like probably every adult in this room, you've entered into a new job yourself, you'll know that the most frustrating parts of a new job, of a new endeavor, are when there is not clarity about what's expected, about the chain of command, about the job responsibilities, about the way they're done, about the resources available to you, that not knowing being in the cloud is stultifying. Having a lack of definition about what's to be done and how it's to be pursued, far from somehow encouraging us and providing happiness, that, that leads to anxiety. That is overwhelming. That, that having clarity, having definition provides remarkable peace about our work. Those of you who've, who've pursued others in a romantic way, you know, nothing is so distractingly tiring as the murky middle, as that experience of, of being interested in pursuing someone and not yet knowing if there's reciprocal interest or if this is going anywhere, Right? Abject rejection is far better than dwelling for extended periods of time in the murky middle. Once you are rejected, you can move on. That page is turned. But dwelling simply in that space where, where you really don't know, where you're constantly reflecting, right? Uh, you're like a commentator on your own life. Every conversation, every gesture, every lack of conversation is something that you process, that you reflect on. We're not made to live that way, to constantly be gaming our existence and reflecting on everything that occurs. That's tiresome. When we have clarity, whether it's yes or it's no, we flourish. That's good. That's clarifying. That provides a way forward that we can act in light of. Many of us have have gone through periods of medical struggle, And it's not pleasant to be told that you've got that cancer or this disease, but it's far better. I've not met anyone who would disagree with this. It's far better to know what you're dealing with than to be going through the cycle of tests and uncertainty where you really don't know and you can only wonder and the only thing available for you to do is turn to WebMD and nothing good ever came from WebMD. Once the doctor can say, this is it, and these are the consequences, and this is what we'll have to do about it, there is clarity and there is peace because there's definition. And friends, that's, that's not just true at work and in love and with our health. That's true in all of life. We are made and designed to have clarity. And so God's law, the, the law of our creator and designer, is meant to bring peace by demonstrating order order in which we find truth, but also goodness and beauty. 
There's a second thing, though, I think we can see in this text about how our our hesitation about God's law and God's word, our desire to, to stay autonomous or pretend we are, to be individuals and to go our own way, that that's just not true. Notice what this says here. This addresses that idea head on as it talks to us about how clarity is good and this word is glorious. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. It's very particular that God's word is meant to lead to our flourishing, to our fullness, to our wholeness. That God wants us not to be satisfied with small things, with distractions, with imposters, with substitutes, but God wants us to live into that for which he designed us, that for which the Son of God came to lead us. God's word is meant to call us out of small-minded things and to burst and expand our imaginations about what fullness might mean. And you catch this at the very beginning of this section, the law of the Lord is perfect. We tend to think that perfection by and large means being immaculate or stainless or spiritually speaking, being sinless. That, that can be the meaning. That is one meaning. And that's almost always not the meaning of the word in the Bible. In the Bible, the word perfect speaks of being complete or whole. That's why in Hebrews 5, we can read that it's through suffering that Jesus was made perfect. He wasn't made sinless. He was not somehow reformed from his wayward, childish ways. We know that that Jesus was yet without sin, according to Hebrews 2, just three chapters before. But there in Hebrews 5, it does say that it was through his experience of suffering that he was perfected. He was already sinless, but he was made whole. He grew up, he developed, he matured. And so later at the very end of Hebrews 5 in verse 14, it'll call all of us similarly to that kind of perfection or wholeness. It's it's not suggesting that you're going to attain some sinless state. You aren't. Your pious grandmother even won't. But, But it is suggesting that we're made for wholeness, for completeness, and that that's where our happiness lies. That's what we're made for. That every facet of our lives, every part of our existence would be a a space in which we receive God's grace happily and joyously. And here we read that that brings great reward. It warns us off beaten paths that will lead to hurt and pain and disappointment. We see that, that it, it warns your servant, but it also beckons us. It draws us forward into places we didn't know imagined, into delights that we couldn't dare name. You know, we, we oftentimes tend to think that in following the ways of the Lord, that's somehow going to shrink our existence. And yet time and again, one of those repeated lines you see in the Psalms and in Isaiah especially is the idea of the broad way, that a, a great image for the life of pilgrimage, 
or the life of journeying with God is the idea of being given a broad way, a, a broad space in which to live. That, that God desires not to, to sort of clamp you down into some sort of stultifying space, but he, he wants to beckon you out into the joys of living in human wholeness in Christ. And his law is meant to do that, to draw your attention to places in your life, to relationships in your midst, to resources to hand, to opportunities that, that we might be more inclined to call crises or challenges, that we might see what wholeness and goodness and truth and life and joy could be found even in those places. And I think there's a third thing that this text says addressing our hesitation about being given a law. And this gets us to our third section of the psalm, verses 12 to 14. I think the the last form of the objection, the way in which we hesitate about living underneath God's word or following God's law and instruction is the idea that, okay, say this was for my good, say I I agreed with that, and say this was going to lead to better happiness, isn't it the case that people who really hold up the law of the Lord are a bunch of arrogant punks? I mean, by and large, aren't people who are so zealous and exuberant about the law of the Lord, aren't they people that I don't really want to be identified with? Uh, You know, they may be a little too blunt, a little too zealous. Uh, they're, They're not the sort of people that I want to live in such a way that eventually I will become. That, that tends to be a, a common understanding we have, that dependence on and delight in the law is going to lead to arrogance, to looking down at others. Notice what we read in these last few verses, verses 12 to 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them have no dominion over me, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The third thing I think we see here that addresses our our hesitation about delighting in the law of the Lord is the fact that the, the law of the Lord points to the great problem within, and only then does it offer grace for our transformation. Notice what this says. This names two ways in which the problem isn't simply mom and dad or the boss or the system or your employer or those politicians or that neighbor down the street. I mean, all those things could be whacked out in a variety of ways. Don't mean to downplay that. There there are lots of different levels at which our lives are marked by pain and disappointment and evil and sadness. But But we can easily be people who will protest those things out there in such a way that we overlook things in here. That will believe that somehow the great problem is the evil culture. Or maybe, if if that's too sort of socially and sociologically defined, maybe think more spiritually. The great problem is Satan and his demons who are after us. But of course, If I'm honest, and if I'm reading the Bible, I don't need Hollywood, and I don't need hell to make me go sin. I've got enough selfishness within. I've got enough impatience within. I've got enough misjudgment and bad intuition within. 
I do not need the devil, nor do I need any media icon, any politician, any cultural influencer to lead me in a bad way. And notice, these verses name the two ways that we tend to go awry, that we tend to do life poorly. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Don't we so often simply fail to address the problem? We just, we're presumptive. We go about doing what we do. This is the way we've done it. This is the way we like doing it. Uh, we, we don't examine it. We don't put it up for critique or self-examination. We just follow our intuitions and we presume. And so many of our sins are based on my own presumption, my own intuition, my own gut instinct. And so God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word illumines and enlightens. It calls for examination. It addresses the sin within. But notice there's a second way that this can go awry. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. It's not enough simply to undergo examination of your ways. We may think, well, that's success. It's better than simply simply going about presumptuously doing what you want. It's certainly better to self-examine, to, to undergo the, the process of critique and critical analysis, to, to seek to ask why you're doing it this way. And that can be true, but of course, it's worth noting that the person typically doing the critique is either you, who is sinful, or someone else you're turning to who is equally sinful. In other words, we need our, our very religious responses and critiques of our actions to themselves be critiqued, to themselves be changed. Um, perhaps a, an analogy from the world of health helps here. Something of my own story. I remember a few years ago when I was very sick, thinking through a number of different things. Uh, for months on end, I was just bottoming out, and we couldn't figure out what was going on. And so there are different things that you could try to improve, changes to diet, to exercise, behavior, and so forth, uh, changes through the use of different medicines prescribed and over-the-counter. And what was remarkable is that even though I got very intentional on my own and with the help of doctors and professionals, it seemed that every time we changed something or did something, it, it actually didn't help. It made it worse. And it was only later that we learned that the reason for that was that underlying all of it was an autoimmune disease. And, and a number of you suffer from this or know someone who does. And the, the funky reality of life with an autoimmune disease is that your immune system, which is supposed to deal with disease, is what? Is itself the problem. That your own efforts at building up your immune strength is precisely what's battering your body. That every effort I would make to eat the healthy salad or to take the medicine that would build up my immune system to combat whatever was going on in my body, that itself further weakened me. I want to suggest this psalm reminds us that's true of all of us spiritually. That so often 
what leads us so far awry is not just sheer presumption that we do what we do thoughtlessly, but even our own intuitions of how to fix ourselves and others, aren't they so often wrong? Don't they so often exacerbate the problem? Aren't they so often coming from the same wayward, misguided, rather foolish place that our initial behavior was? God's word doesn't just cast a light on us. It also provides real diagnosis, real medical care, a real way forward. And in doing that, doesn't that mean that the person who delights in this law, the person who has an honest mirror placed in front of them in God's word, an honest light cast upon them, aren't they going to be the last person in the world to be arrogant? To realize that not only do they need to be corrected, but even their own intuitive sense of how to correct themselves, that too has to be recalibrated. That's why last week, when Scott Miller was drawing our attention to James 1, we saw some remarkable things in those few short words. Let me just read a small snippet of it to you. He said this, beginning in in chapter 1, verse 19 of James, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person, every Christian person, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the justice that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. You see what that's describing? Don't be angry and don't lash out with speech in anger. Something's gone wrong. That's what provokes you to anger. You want to fix it. You want to address it. But notice it says, don't be quick to speak in anger. Don't be aroused to act intuitively. Why? Because God's justice isn't going to be brought about by that. I may feel like I got it off my chest. I may feel like I at least did something. But it's not going to bring wholeness. It's not going to be bringing real justice. And so I need to be a person who's slow to anger and slow to speak. And instead of that, who goes to the word to be implanted. Why? Because my own soul needs to be saved. Because I need my reaction to be recalibrated so that it's not the desire for revenge, so that it's not some misguided path to reconciliation, but it's the real deal. It's a just pursuit. It's a righteous response. We see this in Paul's words to the Romans, that to worship God, our minds need to be transformed. And so as we look at this psalm, I I hope you see that far from delighting in the law leading to arrogance, it actually opens up broad spaces. And it actually humbles us as we put our whole life before God that he might examine it, that he might put to death what's bad, and that he might give new life to what's true and good and beautiful. And perhaps it's not for nothing that the psalm ends with a prayer, and we probably should too. So join me in praying. Lord, may the meditations of all our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. We confess so often we don't bother to address you much less to turn to your word. We presume and we go on doing our own thing. 
And we confess that so often it falters and fails and disappoints us and others. And we know it, it pains your heart. And Lord, we admit that so often we turn to your word, not truly to be addressed and corrected, but rather to get a slap on the, on the back to find a text that will support what we wanted to do anyway. We pray that you would give us the faith to turn, allowing your word to examine us, to be living and active, to be that which makes us wise, that which transforms us into the image of Christ. And so we pray that as we gather together and then as we scatter for the week ahead, that we might be those who turn again and again to your word, and in so doing, those who turn again and again to you in faith. For your word gives us hope as it promises your presence there. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.